Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. Subscribe to SubChina's daily access newsletter to keep on top of all the latest news from China from hundreds of different news sources, or check out all the original writing on the site at subchina.com. We've got reported stories, editorials, regular columns, and a growing library of videos and, of course, podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim people in China's Xinjiang region to China's ambitious effort to eliminate poverty. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. The China Initiative is the name given to a push by the Department of Justice to counter threats initiating in or otherwise beneficial to China, chiefly in the area of industrial espionage. It formally began in November 2018 under then-Attorney General Jeff Sessions, but was taken up by Sessions' successor, William Barr, and continues to this day under Joe Biden's appointee, Merrick Garland. Under its auspices in its first two years, it charged over 60 cases with alleged links to China, obtaining a handful of guilty pleas. But the total number of cases opened under the banner of the China Initiative now numbers in the thousands, with FBI Director Christopher Wray claiming late last year that a new case is being opened on average every 10 hours. While I don't think there's any serious person who would deny altogether that there are some bad actors, including some straight-up spies who've purloined American IP for the benefit of the PRC, many people here in the United States have been deeply concerned that the China Initiative is straight-up ethnic profiling and have raised serious issues with the way that the DOJ has framed it and carry out investigations and prosecutions under its auspices. There is a considerable worry that the China Initiative is both a product of and a major contributing factor in the broader problem of Sinophobia in the U.S., the irrational fear or, or hatred of China, uh, that some would argue, and, and I very much include myself here, has stoked the kind of anti-Asian racism that we have now seen on the streets of American cities. So today I am joined by Margaret Lewis, who has emerged as one of the most forceful and persuasive critics of the China Initiative. Maggie has spoken on the topic frequently over the last year, especially, and has an important paper in the Journal of Criminal Law and Criminology looking at the fundamental problems with the China Initiative through the lens of criminal law. Maggie was last on our program in that last prelapsary in January when we chatted about the Taiwan election in Seattle. Maggie is professor of law at Seton Hall University. Her research focuses on law in mainland China and Taiwan with an emphasis on criminal justice. She is now in Taipei, where the lucky woman has been riding out COVID-19 in that land of high social trust, very nice people, and exquisite food. Maggie, welcome back to Seneca. Great to be here. I realized that last time we were in the United States talking about Taiwan, and now I'm in Taiwan talking about the United States. So yep. we flipped it. <laughs> and that's always how it's going to be. The pattern is now locked in, and we're never going to ask you about anything Taiwan-related when you're in Taiwan uh, and, and vice versa. So anyway, before we jump in and talk about your paper uh, and uh, the China Initiative, let, let's make sure that we're clear up front what your paper is not. In other words, I mean, you aren't simply saying that none of these cases has merit or that industrial espionage simply isn't something that requires an American response, right? 
there is a there there. There, I think that when you look back even before the Trump administration, you saw under Obama a desire to start increasing the security consciousness, is I think a way of putting it, of researchers and scientists, both in academia and in the private sector. Uh, and you had the FBI under uh, Obama issuing two threat awareness films. You might have seen Game of Pawns and or The Company Man. Yeah. Uh, this has been joined. Uh, the trilogy now has uh, The Nevernight Connection, which was uh, created under the Trump administration. But uh, but yes, this was something that there was an increasing realization that the PRC party state was using incentives and sometimes flat out directing people to engage in illegal behavior that was uh, taking intellectual property from US-based entities uh, back to China. And do you think that had been stepped up in the years uh, of the Obama administration? And that was sort of what was driving this new kind of consciousness about uh, trade secret theft and and, uh, and and that sort of thing. Um, is there strong evidence that there was, you know, an uptick of, of actual IP theft during the Obama tenure? Or do you think there were other factors? This is when we get into the land of the known knowns and known unknowns. And right. it's really hard to, to, to know because, uh, as you mentioned in the introduction, we do know that the FBI has increased its uh, emphasis on these cases and they are opening cases at a rate of one every 10 hours. But actually just opening an investigation doesn't tell us much about uh, whether the actual prevalence of illegal behavior has increased or is it more that there is greater focus focus on taking the law enforcement resources and looking for these kinds of cases. But when under Obama, you saw this, on the one hand, wanting to try to cooperate with Beijing on intellectual property. When Xi Jinping visited DC, there was some nice words about, you know, we're, we're, we're both there to protect IP. And, and that sort of working together aspect of the, on the other side, being concerned about IP theft, the working together part went out the window under Trump and, and turned Right. to entirely just the concern about economic or industrial espionage. So before we get into how things changed during the Trump administration, a, a little more color maybe. Uh, you, you mentioned a couple of films that were made to educate DOJ or FBI employees um, that you can, and, uh, you know, you actually talk about them in, in, in your paper. Uh, they were Game of Pawns and Company Man. Um, and that was all during Obama. You, you mentioned a, a, a new one. I have not seen that new one yet. Can you quickly describe what those two films were about, Game of Pawns and Company Man? And they're to educate the public. These are threat awareness films. Uh, you also had, starting under Obama, threat awareness briefings, where you would have members of the Department of Justice, DOJ, and the FBI would go out and speak to people in the business sector and academia. And these films, which are available online, are one way of doing that. So the first game of pawns is the story of an American student who goes to China, bright eyed and bushy tailed, and gets recruited to then go back to join the CIA and, and become some deep mole and, and that gets thwarted. And these are loosely based on, on, on real stories, uh, you know, of our vintage I think we remember the after-school specials that would oh, be course. the cautionary tales of going to the prom drunk or something. So it's sort of a similar vibe. And then the <laughs> second, Company Man, uh, was a story of a sort of absolutely nondescript man working in some business, and he gets approached by some very dodgy-looking Chinese, quote, businessmen with a, you know, sort of briefcase full of cash to stick a, a, a flash drive into the company uh, computer um, that to, you know, sort of be aware of how you can be primed to be then compromised and actually the vehicle for economic espionage. So um, China, of course, answered back with its own versions of these. They were maybe more like the film strips that we saw in grade school, uh, but they were, they were cartoon panels and you'd see them, you know, put up in different communities, apparently. I never actually saw one in the wild, but uh, I saw them reproduced. You know about this uh, Lothario, this American guy named David, and he seduces Dawei, right? He seduces the you know the unsuspecting uh, woman who works in some company and is able to 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 glean all sorts of state secrets through uh, through her pillow talk or whatever it is. And uh, yeah, yeah, I, they're sort of 
I put them in the same bucket, maybe higher production values in Company Man and Game of Pawns, but that's about it. So, but underpinning, uh, shifting now into, you know, the actual China initiative, so post-November 2018, underpinning this initiative is a particular view of China as an existential threat. Did, did this view come to suddenly dominate thinking at the DOJ and other government departments and agencies um, during Trump? Or do you think that there were sort of, you know, it was already headed in that direction prior to 2016? And maybe hypothetically, had Hillary Clinton won in 2016, do you think we would have seen something different out of DOJ? There was definitely momentum going that direction. It wasn't like this initiative kind of sprung fully formed from the head of Zeus like Athena in November of 2018. You you had already concerns about economic espionage in China. You might remember under Obama, there was the high profile prosecution of several PL linked uh, officers for um, actually they were based in China for uh, hacking. Ugly gorilla, I remember was one of them. <laughs> right. There's no way that they were actually ever going to appear in court in the United States. It was much more the expressive function of that prosecution right. to show that the U.S. Was, was taking this seriously. They were considering it important in the bilateral relationship. And so economic espionage and hacking and sort of other concerns about uh, national security being uh, compromised by people linked to the PRC party state was increasing. Uh, what you saw in November of 2018 when Jeff Sessions stood up at the mic with a whole you know, group of U.S. attorneys behind him and members of the FBI was that there was this enhancement and coalescing of resources. And I also just need to make clear that to call a DOJ initiative by a country name is highly unusual, if not unprecedented. I have not been able to find an equivalent Russia initiative or Canada initiative, um, that this was very much a decision that, that China was this threat. And the speaking in terms of a China threat or a Chinese threat was common in the rhetoric. Uh, and uh, and something needed to be done about it. And, and they were going to throw a lot of resources behind it. Yeah, and we'll get into exactly what you see as the problems with the name of the initiative and, you know, its country specificity and so forth. But first of all, how did you personally get interested in looking into this? I mean, you've talked before about how uh, in November of 2019, the District of, of New Jersey asked Seton Hall to host a threat awareness briefing of the kind that you talked about. Uh, and you were, you found that the language that was being used was, was problematic, I think. Uh, what's, what's the whole, whole story there of, you know, how you decided to take up this banner? Yeah, I'm a I'm a criminal law, criminal procedure professor. In addition to doing my China and Taiwan work, I, I teach the next generation of lawyers, I create more of them, uh, about U.S. law. And I had written an article uh, probably about six years ago now titled When Foreign is Criminal, and that was looking at different parts of the U.S. federal criminal laws that made uh, being foreign part of the offense, whether it be providing material support to a foreign terrorist organization without a counterpart for a domestic terrorist organization, hmm. treason, or, you know, the foreign campaign money. And one of that cases, one of the crimes I was looking at was economic espionage, because already then it was starting to get more attention. It's not that old of a crime. It only goes back to the mid-late 1990s. And huh. economic espionage being what it is, it's, it's trade secret theft. But right. instead of just your garden variety trade secret theft, it's with the intended beneficiary being either a foreign government or an entity closely connected with a foreign government. Right. And so Managed it's an, by, owned by, controlled by, whatever by. Exactly. Whatever, right? So it's a, a trade secret plus. And, um, and, and in, for the most part, when, when someone steals a company's intellectual property, we usually deal with that in, in civil courts, right? You sue. You, you want money because someone took your IP. Right. And I also just find it interesting when it's determined that that stealing is not just a, a a harm to that individual or that individual company that owns the IP, but rather it's seen as this larger societal harm, and it needs the criminal law to address it. Um, and so we're not just having the civil suit, but something beyond that. So I had started looking at this even before the China initiative. And then as you mentioned, as part of these threat awareness briefings, the District of New Jersey had done a briefing at Seton Hall, um, particularly because we have a lot of relationships with the life sciences companies that are that are big in New Jersey. Right. And that was the first time I, I saw the full 
PowerPoint display and, and heard about how the Made in China 2025 was a, quote, roadmap to theft and saw the slide saying, what has China stolen? And uh, and it, it really made me take pause and, and just realize uh, where this, not just the rhetoric, but also the uh, actual implementation was going. So the cases that have been opened under the auspices of the China Initiative include many that are you know, pretty clear, clear-cut cases of you know, industrial espionage. But there are others that seem to boil down to you know, failure to disclose affiliations, a thousand talents program, double dipping uh, funding that goes unreported. How many is you have sense for how many of, of the of the investigations that have been opened are what the percentage is that is actually uh, that actually intends to charge industrial espionage? We can't get statistics on the cases opened because okay. there are and then there are actually good reasons because if the FBI needed to announce to the world every time a case was open that would you know right. severely compromise their ability to actually build the case and and this is even more acute the opacity when there's a national security overlay so what we can look at is when we actually get to the point of charges and there's going to be a lot of cases that don't make it that far and 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 that's good you want a lot of cases to to not make it to charging because that means that you know we're we're actually going to the point that this person could face um, you know, serious criminal uh, consequences. And we don't want that unless the uh, evidence is not just probable cause, but all the way to beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, people are trying to do some data work here. It's just really difficult because a lot of it ends up being anecdotal. Even on the Department of Justice website where they have a sort of occasionally refreshed list of China initiative cases, it's not comprehensive. It's a, here's example cases, and they have several dozen up. Because uh, there's no, I, I haven't had anyone be able to tell me what gets a case clearly stamped with a China initiative case. Right. Uh, just because there's some connection with China doesn't mean it's China initiative. And the cases under that list are, are quite varied. In fact, there's one that even involves uh, turtle smuggling, which was kind of an unexpected uh, entry into the, the list. <laughs> it's turtles all the way down. Obviously, we want there to be a lot of cases that, that are in, open and investigated and aren't formally charged. That shows the system works. But what happens when an investigation is even opened into an individual? It can completely upend their lives. I mean, it does. It completely upends their lives. I mean, and uh, it really it, it has a, a, a chilling effect on a lot of other people, especially when there's a perception that they're targeting a specific ethnicity or a specific nationality. So, you know, can you talk about that? I mean, a case opened every 10 hours and a, a tiny percentage of them a year later, you know, end up being charged. Uh, that This seems deeply problematic. One question that I myself and others keep asking is is how are you finding these cases that are being opened every ten hours? Uh, how much of this is is combing uh, lists of grants um, for NIH or other federal entities, and um, whether people realize it or not, looking for names uh, that uh, sound a certain way. And right. and there was a, a, a law review article published in 2018 uh, in Cardozo Law Review that, that tried to go back and the data was from before, the cases were from before the China Initiative, and look to see based on coding for last names that uh, sounded Chinese, you know, the right. Zhang, Huang, etc., and 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 that you know it's it's difficult because it, it could be that there's a higher prevalence of illegal uh, activity connected to China by people who are ethnically Chinese. We we can't disprove that. But what I found really interesting in that article was that uh, it's found that the people whose last names were Chinese had higher sentences, and I'm not sh I haven't been able to see if that can be explained away by the nature of those cases just being more severe. So right. I can tell you now that there's great groups of um, organizations, legal advocacy, advocacy groups that are working to do updated data and, and try to do some actual real like, regression analysis and whatnot to, to get some of these answers. Maggie, I mean, it's not surprising that given that you are a law professor, you tackle this issue from a legal perspective primarily. Principles of criminal law, you argue, undergird the DOJ's work, but the China Initiative itself is problematic when you measure it against those principles. You write, when assessed in light of the goals of deterrence, incapacitation, rehabilitation, and retribution, which of course are, you know, the four, you know, bases, bases of, of 
punitive uh, law in, in the United States. It is worrisome that the prosecution and punishment of people and entities rests in part on a connection with China. This is something you flicked at before. Uh, you know, let's spend some time with this and talk about what is worrisome about this, uh, why the framing and the actual implementation of the China Initiative fails when measured against our uh, our or our long-established principles of, of punishment. Yeah, and, and this is where I hold prosecutors to a very high standard, uh, and they have tremendous power. And some of the concerns about the China Initiative are features of our entire criminal justice system. You know, when I say to people who work in criminal justice that you know, prosecutors have a lot of discretion in what charges they pick, and they have a lot of power and, and don't have to disclose that much until very late in the game. It can be as right. late as trial. For I mean, those are features. Those aren't bugs. And and, uh, and I think they're just more sometimes pronounced in this setting. Uh, and so for me, when I when I came to this, uh, my bottom line is that we don't have to have sort of the smoking email that says we're going after everyone whose last name sounds Chinese in order for the China Initiative to be deeply problematic. You know, it's hard to prove that it's illegal, that there's actually selective prosecution. Uh, people have tried to say that, but actually, again, getting that evidence that someone's being singled out because of their ethnicity or national origin is different to prove. But when you look at um, the effect that it's having and the way that the language, particularly under the Trump administration, it's really just you know, so shocking how questioning the loyalty of someone who was born outside the U.S. I mean, I don't want to go back to those times. Yeah, no, I uh, completely. Um, but I mean, I think you can expand on this a little bit more specifically, you know, uh, how does it fail against these four, you know, usual goals? I mean, does it fail to deter? Does it fail to incapacitate? Does it fail to rehabilitate? Well, I mean, I think rehabilitation isn't even on the table here, right? Um, well, it's fine because, okay, so we get to go criminal law 101. Yeah. Uh, right, we, you know, we punish people hopefully for a reason, not just because it's fun. Then that's a problem, right? So we punish people for reasons that society will be better off by punishing them. And we punish people because we think they deserve to be punished, retribution, right? right? And when the China Initiative was first announced, one thing I found interesting is it was put out there as this was against the thieves and hackers, using the DOJ's language, as well as trying to send messages to Beijing. So it wasn't just about the people who were directly engaged in putting the flash drive into the computer, but somehow, too, this was about influencing Beijing's behavior, which I think we both know is, as I say in the paper, kind of like going after an iceberg, you know, a glacier with an ice pick, you know, good luck yeah. with that. But so first of all, the, the main goal seems to be deterrence, and in particular, general deterrence, that mm -hmm. people mm -hmm. who are researchers will say, I don't want to be the next Gang Chen or Charles Lieber. So mm -hmm. I will, um, again, have my security consciousness increased, I will be concerned if I get approached and get an email about a thousand talents plan that wants me to come and spend time in Fuzhou or whatever. Um, and so I will either, if I'm starting down that path, I will stop or I will never even let myself get close to that kind of illegal behavior using someone as an example. So that's the, that's the clearest what, uh, example. It can sure. also be um, this, you know, incapacitation is one reason. Again, we lock up people so they can't be outside of uh, prison causing harm. As I said here, these are generally not people that were worried about being violent criminals. And once they're exposed, if someone really did engage in trade secret theft, I mean, no one's going to hire them. You don't have to right. put them in prison to stop their behavior, right? Uh, rehabilitation, uh, when we think of rehabilitation, it's often programs to help someone get um, some education, to get off, um, you know, chemical substances that they're dependent on, uh, all these things, which again, don't really fit when someone's a, you know, a, a, a chemical engineer or a astrophysicist or whatever it might be. Um, and then finally, retribution. I mean, and this is a question. Do you know, people deserve to be punished? Um, do we think that they've done something that is, you know, reprehensible. Um, and so you do the crime, you do the time. Uh, and then that, I think that raises interesting questions about, is it because the intellectual property was intended for China as compared for intended with someone within the US or another country? Does that make it more morally blameworthy? Does right, that make right, it right. worse? So you actually go further to argue, and I think this is you know a really important piece of, of your paper, that 
the China Initiative and the way the approach that's been taken undermines the spirit of non-discrimination that the DOJ explicitly lays out in, in its justice manual. Uh, I think that's the nub of it, really, that you know it's essentially discriminatory, that it is racial profiling. Can you make your case? How, how yeah. do you think that, yeah, that it, it's, what's your, your evidence to suggest that, that it really violates that spirit of non-discrimination? So, so we've got the punishment portion. You know, I just want, you know, we punish people with purpose and I, and I don't think it's serving a great purpose there, or at least not living up to the, the hype that it has been set forth. And then just the name itself. So we start, what do we gain by calling it the China Initiative instead of just saying, as part of what prosecutors do, we're going to protect uh, intellectual property. So there, when you look at the language surrounding the China Initiative since its inception, uh, it lumps together, it glues together gather people, not just based on actual connections with, as I say, the PRC party state, because some of these are within the formal PRC government structure. Some of these talent plans and other um, activities are more connected with the, the communist party structure, but also based on ethnicity, based on national origin. And you even get in some of the press releases statements like, and this person spoke fluent Chinese, and right, someone right, who's right. Caucasian, which I, I don't see any reason that that's connected to uh, the actual criminal allegations. Uh, I remember so- that was that was a, a piece of Mara Fistendahl's book, um, The Scientist and the Spy, which I would highly recommend. Uh, we actually discussed that in a live show that we taped in New York, uh, again, in anti-Covidian days. But, um, it, and it read really anything highlights- that Mara writes. Mara's, yeah, no, Mara she's, continues she's to churn out great writing on these issues around. Um, and we can talk about you know, later about, you know, how do we actually, what's our goal here? It's it's not to, to punish people stealing IP, it's to increase intellectual property in the U.S. Um, that's the the ultimate goal here. Uh, so when you look at what's the way that it's been discussed, it's this um, so-and-so, a naturalized U.S. citizen, again, emphasizing where people are from. And what we know more and more about how human beings operate is that there's explicit bias. People sometimes will just flat out be racist or whatever. And there's but implicit bias really kicks in. And the American right. Bar Association, for example, has done a, a toolkit about how prosecutors are influenced as because they are human beings uh, by bias. And under the Trump administration, not only did I see no grappling with the influence of bias, but there was a flat out rejection of any efforts to to try to figure out whether uh, there might be some influence. Because the justice manual, and this is important, uh, which is the manual for prosecutors, says that prosecutors should not be influenced by a number of factors, including race, ethnicity, national origin. And that word influence is important because it's not just we are charging you because you're Chinese, but we have to ask, you know, is that working into their decision making, whether they realize it or not? I mean, and the China Initiative obviously continues under Merrick Garland, but the least I could hope for, though, is that at least there would be more consciousness of this. There at least wouldn't be this immediate rejection of any suggestion that there is implicit bias. Um, at, you know, the, the, we're, there's the Democrats are in office. You know, we're a little more open to the suggestion that there there may be structural racism and whatnot. Um, maybe at least they'll be uh, they'll rethink this kind of quota approach that you know we've seen in action. Can you talk about that a bit? It seems to be how the China Initiative has actually been operating, where uh, different uh, districts, the DAs that that are, are are enrolled in this thing, are expected to bring X number of cases in a, a given period, right? I mean, that seems just kind of positively ludicrous to me. Well, well, first, with respect to the Biden administration, we're recording this on I think, exactly day 100 or so, yeah, and and Garland has been even in less than that. So, uh, I'm I'm trying, you know, to give Attorney General Garland a bit of a runway, and and there's been a lot of other things going on too that he needs to deal with. So I'm 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 cautiously optimistic that we will see some some movement, but um, it's still early. Uh, there there is not with respect to whether there's a quota system. There is no hard and fast quota. There never was a, we want to see each one of these districts, you know, there's 94 federal districts in the United States have at least three cases or you fail. 
But what we did see was very clear messaging from Maine Justice in D.C. Mm-hmm. that, you know, these cases are hard. So maybe you won't have one this year, but then maybe next year you'll have it. And and you, I mean, you don't have to say more than that to make very clear that this is a top priority of the Department of Justice. And you better be looking hard to make sure that you are living up to that expectation, even if it isn't you have to check the box with X number of cases. Check under the bed. <laughs> yeah, it's... it's um one of the things that you that you bring up that I thought was really really interesting is that um, the use of of you know China this con- conflation of of the state and the individual uh, the the criminalization of what you call Chinaness, which is an interesting uh, turn of phrase, but a kind of proximity to or an association in some way with China uh, that you think is really being prosecuted in these cases. Um, you'll they'll describe as you as you said, uh, you know, some Chinese person. Uh, and say, well, he speaks, or it could be some non-Chinese person and say, well, you know, he, he speaks fluent Chinese as though this is, you know, evidence of perfidy. Uh, for our listeners who aren't following the ins and outs of these trials, what exactly do you mean when you, you talk about China-ness? And I, I struggled to figure out how to capture this idea that it, it could be different types of connectivity that give you sort of an enhanced scrutiny. Um, and and again, it's not like there's a checklist on DOJ. Look to see if they have a you know, PRC passport or or heritage ties to, to China. But you have um, some people are you know born and raised in the United States, but they do have family ties to China. They are totally Chinese American. Other people still have PRC passports. Uh, I think that it used to be that connectivity to China was often seen as a good thing. Let's have more cooperation and and let's get those MOUs with whatever Chinese university to have a joint project. And and that connectivity has increasingly become a liability. Uh, And this also connects to the sense that we are increasingly in the criminal justice system moving towards a risk assessment model. You know, what kind of people are risky bets? What kind of people can we let out on bail and what sort of risk factors? And the more you do that sort of actuarial model, the more these sort of connections with China make people look like risky bets that should be looked at with some more intensity. Oh, absolutely. Do you you think that this conflation uh, of state and individual, of, of all Chinese entities with the PRC party state is something that is being deliberately driven by the people behind the China Initiative at DOJ? Or do you think that this is sort of a, a reflexive kind of, you know, just as Americans, you know, I think a lot of people now do that habitually. Do you, do you, do you have a theory on that? And the, the DOJ is is not monolithic. Uh, there was right. a, a difference, I think, between the the people who had been there a long time, and some of them actually, you know, strong knowledge of China. And for example, Andrew Lelling, who is um, now no longer the U.S. Attorney for Massachusetts, but uh, was when both Lieber and the Gang Chen and other cases, and and he was uh, very fast to grab a microphone and say things like, "Yeah, more of the people we're prosecuting are Han Chinese," because guess what? That's what People are more in China. Like he just flat out would say things like that in right. his um, interview. So I don't want to um, treat it um, as as a monolith. Just like we shouldn't treat the PRC as a monolith. And and you know we know too that things get really murky sometimes in ties, and that universities in China do have ties to the government and the party. And we're in fact seeing um, now reports that we're going to have enhanced party leadership in universities. So there is a there there. But this sense that we've that there, there's no wall, there's no difference, is is too simplistic. And we would have comments uh, by again the political appointees under Trump that if you give your information to an entity in China, you've given it to the Communist Party, like flat out. Right. 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 So your work has gotten quite a bit of attention, and uh, I don't think all of it has necessarily been positive. I'm I'm curious what the response you've heard from people who are within at the FBI or in the DOJ more broadly uh, to your work. Have they pushed back against you? Uh, I know that I've brought your name up with a couple of people who've kind of go, "Oh, Maggie Lewis." <laughs> yeah, and you know, and I and I get that it's you know we're those of us who are criticizing it are at a disadvantage because you know, people are like, "Show us the numbers," and it's like, 
how, right? You know, we, it's really, right. we, we, we just don't, we don't have the data. But one thing I've been doing is spending a lot of time uh, talking with uh, the scientific community, uh, and in particular, people who are uh, either Chinese American or PRC uh, passport holders, but working uh, about their lived experience, because I think part of this is qualitative, like, what does it Absolutely. feel like to be right. uh, Asian, particularly Chinese in the United States today? And all of this has been exacerbated, of course, by by COVID. Uh, but I think when we when I've interacted with people at DOJ and I appreciate when they've done webinars or had conversations, that when we get it down to the overarching goal is to increase research security. I completely support that. But it's how we go about it and how much do we use the heavy hammer of the criminal law as compared with administrative sanctions or, or other ways of addressing some of the um, less, you know, less egregious violations. And I don't think enough has been done to work with the scientific community on grant streamlining, you know, streamlining the requirements to for grant compliance, educating, you know, what are um, your responsibilities. Uh, some universities do a better job than others. So I think we can all agree that there's work to be done there. Uh, and at a minimum, there is work to be done in thinking about how uh, bias does um, just infiltrate our decision making. And anyone who tells me they're not biased, I, I just don't believe them because they're human. And and the question right. is, in what way and how much? So I think people are sometimes been a little dismissive that um, they they haven't done the work to 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 quote our our, our great vice president because you you got to you got to do the work to uh, to address these more deep seated issues. That's right. You uh, make some really, really, I think, very, very thoughtful suggestions about what we think, what you think we should do to actually improve that work. One thing that you've suggested is simply getting rid of of the designation China Initiative and and doing an explicitly country neutral approach. You know uh, that this country of origin designation is what is fundamentally problematic about it. Uh, how far would that take us, and and how likely is that to actually happen? I think it's a, a necessary but insufficient step, right? Okay. So it would, first of all, signal that there is a recognition that this security consciousness pendulum has swung too far. Uh, and, and it also would recognize that even if more cases are still going to be connected back to China, that other, guess what? Other countries also sometimes steal our IP. And, and, yeah. you know, we don't, and even the cases under the China initiative, even if it goes back to China, we've had Singaporean nationals, uh, you know, we've had other countries involved. And so I think it just makes it more that, you know, we need to decide, um, using the, the, the small yard, high fence, uh, shout out to Sam Sachs and others that use this, that let's figure out what is actually, um, something that we want to protect using the criminal law. What kind of assets, what kind of IP um, are we going to protect? And and there, I think, like, Rory Truex um, is doing great work trying to yeah. figure out, you know, how do we draw lines so that we can keep our open science model? Because the reason the U.S. is a leader in science and technology is we believe in collaboration and having it so that scientists work together. So, how, but that comes with vulnerabilities. So, so how can we try to keep as much openness as possible to get that brains, smart brains working together? Um, and then at what point do we say now we're getting into the realm where either because of economic security or real like, comp, you know, national security, that it's something that could be used in a weapon or in a other um, more destructive manner, that we need to really step up uh, the security. So that's one aspect to it. Uh, I think a lot more could be done to talk to people who understand China. I'm thinking of, you know, people like Meg Rithmere, uh, love her at Harvard Business School, yeah. looking at state capitalism and what entities in China really are concerning. Uh, and I think more could be done to to talk to the communities of um, Asian Americans advancing justice and, and others who um, really understand more how uh, discrimination and bias is um, affecting those communities and what can be done to mitigate it. So you've talked a little bit about how the FBI and the DOJ should be working uh, with academia and with the private sector. Uh, let me. I just wanted to give a quick shout out to my colleagues who put together a really good video. All I did was uh, contribute narration to it, but uh, it's actually it's ex, ex, it's called "Scientists in the Crosshairs," 
Uh, and that is sort of, you know, if you are somebody who puts on a, a white lab coat in the morning and, and you happen to have black hair and epicantic eye folds, um, maybe, you know, watch this video and, and understand what you need to do should you find yourself actually in the crosshairs. Maggie, um, you raised the concern, of, uh, and just now we talked about it, uh, how this will impact the flow of talent into the U.S., and I completely share that concern. I mean, my worry is that this is metastasizing, that there's this belief now that we're seeing taking hold, not just within the Beltway, but I think across, across the broader U.S. population, that Beijing has weaponized its entire population. And, you know, we're seeing this leading now to, to calls to actually ban or block students from the PRC from coming to the U.S. to study at all. I mean, I think we both reacted, you know, with the same kind of abhorrence to that, uh, uh, that that fellow who I can't remember his name right now who wrote this execrable op-ed in on the, you know the the publication The Hill which will fucking print anything apparently but um this was basically saying that we should fund universities to explicitly ban students from the PRC and uh you know I think that's deeply goddamn problematic and not just because it's completely at odds with you know the core values of the United States but also because it ultimately cripples us I mean if if the goal is to compete against China then, you know, I think our best, obviously, our best asset is our openness, as, as you said. And, uh, and yeah, and Rory and people like that are doing great work looking at, you know, uh, the, maybe the cost benefit analysis of, of open science. But I think we're, we're pretty uniformly concluding that the openness and the advantages that, that accrue to us from openness outweigh, uh, the risks. Uh, we can be, we can be, Careful, but you know we threaten to, to throw the the baby out with the bathwater every time you know we uh, start just sort of willy nilly prosecuting anyone whose name has a Z, a Q, a Y, or an X in it, right? Yeah, and everything I've seen, whether it be from Macro Polo or the PsyOps project at Arizona State, is that the U.S. has greatly benefited from the inflow of talent artificial right. intelligence and you know, whatever pick your pick your science right and and that we we need to attract I say this as an American even though I'm overseas the best and brightest minds regardless of the characteristics of the bodies in which those minds are, are housed and and what we're finding is that there is a chilling effect and we're starting to get I just mentioned psyops which is at Arizona State has done some polling um, of researchers and a, a majority they found were considering should I leave the US and this wasn't just even Chinese. And the political rhetoric was uh, the main reason they cited um, that it's it's just hard. And so there, you know, we don't want to do an own goal of, of having people leave the U.S. for China or other places. And and also, uh, unfortunately, we're, we're giving talking points to Beijing. I've had this thrown back at me by um, people who are um, – much more than mouthpieces of, of the PRC party state, right. that they are aware of um, not just the spike in discrimination and violence against AAPI communities and, and foreign nationals, uh, but also that uh, that the U.S. government is speaking of China in terms of it being an existential threat, uh, and that's um, and, and that's not that's not helping. Indeed, it is not. Maggie, just now you mentioned a couple of cases. You mentioned Charles Lieber uh, and Gong Chen at uh, MIT. Can you talk a little bit about that case in particular? Because you wrote about that for China, and it's one that you're more familiar with. And and in many ways, I think it, it sort of exemplifies a lot of the, the, the problematic uh, in, in the China initiative. So the case of Gong Chen. Yeah, and this case uh, started, I mean, it started you know, earlier than this uh, January, but the charges uh, came out in January, right in the bottom of the ninth inning of the Trump administration. And we had on January 13th, the criminal complaint, which is basically like the draft charges. And then about a week later, the actual indictment issued by a grand jury. And and what he is being charged with, and he's a, I mean, a, I, I'm not Again, I'm not someone who's in the hard sciences, but renowned, um, you know, and, and, and I guess loved by his colleagues, but, you know, people, yeah, you know, that, that doesn't say anything about your, your guilt or innocence, but, uh, but he's being charged with, uh, wire fraud, uh, failure to declare a foreign bank account over a certain amount of money and, uh, and, and some tax, um, 
tax charges. And as we've mentioned that, you know, this is a time that the charges themselves are not economic espionage. And and there can be several reasons for that. I mean, so first of all, like lying, false statements or, or wire fraud, cream fraud, those are federal crimes. And so I don't want people to be like, well, we shouldn't charge it if it's not economic espionage. Well, then the decision is maybe Congress should get rid of those as crimes, but they are. And so, you know, it is actually something that prosecutors um, can and should bring charges for. Uh, but what was interesting was there was, first of all, the initial charges and talking about like $19 million that went to Gang Chen. And then uh, quickly the government said, well, I guess it went to MIT. And so the, the scientific right. community was, you know, first of all, I think taken aback that there seemed to be um, a lack of sophistication and understanding how uh, the the model worked and where the money right. went. Um, and and so there, I think that sort of undermined uh, the confidence and the charges. And, um, and it's also an interesting case because not only has the MIT community, including the university president, spoke out very forcefully in defense of, of Pro- Professor Chen, uh, but they're also paying his legal fees. And so a lot of these cases plead out. Uh, they don't go to trial. But this is one that it will take a while, but I do expect that we're going to see him carry this through all the way. Hmm. It's definitely one to watch. Very, very important one. Maggie Lewis, thank you so much for taking time out of your evening to speak with, with me about this really important issue. Let's move on now to recommendations. But uh, before we do that, I want to remind our listeners that the Seneca podcast is powered by China. And if you like what we're doing with Seneca and with the other shows in the Seneca Network, like our new China Stories series, uh, the very best thing that you can do to support our work is to subscribe to SubChina's daily newsletter. The thing is really chock full of really good reads on China delivered to your inbox every day. Really great value for money. Sign up, you get two months for basically, you know, free and uh, spread the word. So on to recommendations. Maggie, what you got for us? Well, you, you said it is evening here, which means uh, shortly before we got on, I got the little guys to bed. Uh, and so I want to give you some children book recommendations. Oh, good. Yeah. Oh, good, good, good. You know, and so the mine are six and eight. So they're, they're, they're kind of aging more into the, uh, Captain Underpants and the bad guys. And because, you know, <laughs> a farting piranha has got a lot of mileage at that age, but we still have, uh, picture books and, um, a, a set that I was just looking at this evening that I really like is, uh, it's what do you do with an idea? What do you do with a problem? And what do you do with a chance? Um, and uh, they're wow. beautiful uh, books. And uh, the the author is 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 Kobe Yamada, and I can't remember the name of the illustrator, but uh, really nice messages uh, to kids about you know what do you do when people think your idea is silly and you shouldn't pursue it, and uh, and or what do you do with a problem? Well, if you ignore it, it's going to get bigger. And, and what do you do with a chance? If you don't take it, then they're they're going to come around less often. So I think um, for parents, it's a nice sort of end of the end of the evening uh picture book option oh wow those sound really terrific i wish we had those around when i was a kid do you have any other picture books i mean any other children's books you want to recommend while we're, while we're on this oh God, i love so many of them i think another, okay one more that beautiful oops if um and, mm. and and that's a board book that actually has uh lots of paper that you can touch and it's you know really good for little hands but the uh story there is that you know even when you think you've made a mistake uh you can make it into something beautiful so if you have a smudge on your paper or you know a, a stain on it um maybe you just need to look at it a different way and and play with it. So it's a really nice message for for kids, especially as they're frustrated when their fine motor skills aren't aren't where they want them to be. <laughs> I remember when I was uh, reading to my kids when they were, I mean, they did all the, the standards of the Seuss and all that stuff, the Berenstein Bears and all. Uh, but um, they they always wanted me to do what they call the Gaoshao Ban, that sort of, I, I would just make stuff up and, and you know, introduce all sorts of um, just ribald kind of, you know, body kind of scenes, and uh, I was a terrible father. But they, they, it would keep them up too late. They would start cackling with glee, and you know, push my limits. You know, get me to actually like drop a swear word here and there. But uh, yeah, that was those were the days. Best parenting advice I ever got was uh, survive the day, and there's no shame in survival. So you got them this far, you're doing just <laughs> fine, Kaiser. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, my I, this is pretty fun. I, over the weekend, I did a, a Lord of the Rings extended version marathon with my daughter, uh, who's like a burgeoning Tolkien fan, and uh, she insisted that I buy her. Uh, we were trying. I was trying to decide whether you know I should get her a Sindarin English dictionary or a Quenya English dictionary, the two Elvish languages. You know, um, 
And she said, why not both, Dad? You know, so she was, yeah, here we go. Here we go. It's next thing I'm going to, we're going to be rolling, you know, 20-sided dice together in no time. <laughs> anyway, okay. My Heavy recommendation metal. is. Yeah, yeah. The album Blackwater Park from 2001 by the Swedish progressive metal band Opeth, which is just definitely one of my very, very favorite bands of all time. I mean, this particular album might be, for me, the apogee of heavy metal. I mean, like, where it got to when it it was its great, truly greatest. The brutal and the cerebral are both kind of maximized with just these, these astonishing lush compositions and, you know, displaying all sorts of you know, virtuosity, technical brilliance in, in the playing, but also the sound quality of this recording, just the sculpted detail. It's just truly exquisite. Now, it's not for everybody. I mean, Opeth is a progressive metal band, but the half the vocals on the record, or at least half, are still, you know, done in death metal vocal style. So think Cookie Monster. I always try to distinguish. So Cookie Monster is death metal. The Elmo stuff, that's black metal. It's like the shrieking, the kind of, that that's that's not it's like ooh, that that's that's death metal right anyway it's it's a non-starter for a lot of people i guess but um even those vocals they're the best sounding death metal vocals i've ever heard so if you can listen past all of that and and just check out the, the sheer intelligence and the artistry that is on very conspicuous display on all the compositions on this record i think you might really dig it um also steven wilson of the band porcupine tree which is all another one of my very very favorite bands he produces that and a couple of other opeth records uh damnation and deliverance and you can hear the difference i mean it's just there's so great the production quality is so great on these uh and so check it out i mean you'll, you'll learn something about what it is that your 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 humble host uh looks for in music <laughs> I see. I, I mean, when, when I when I make a metal recommendation, I'll get a, an occasional like fan letter, and people, will, oh my god, I love them too. But mostly, it's crickets. I mean, no, nobody cares about my fucking metal. Uh, all I can think of now is if the whole Sesame Street crew was in a yeah, in, you know, like a metal band, what that would look you like. You can you can see it. I mean, if you Google like you know Cookie Monster metal, it's like there's like versions of him doing like C's for Cookie metal version. It's 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 very funny. See, it's a cookie. It's good enough for me. Yeah. Anyway, I, before I ruin my voice trying to do that, I'm going to read the outro, but say goodbye to you, Maggie. Thank you so much. Anytime. Thanks so much yeah. for paying attention to these issues. Oh, no. Thank you for, for, for doing the actual work uh, and uh, uh, really looking forward to, to following up with you as, as things progress. I mean, hopefully we'll do one where we talk about the, the end of the China Initiative or the, the name change under Merrick Garland. Anyway, thank I'm you an, so much, I'm Maggie. an optimist at heart, so I, I, let's, let's, <laughs> let's, let's, let's plan on that. You enjoy the rest of your evening, okay? Bye, Kaiser. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by me, Kaiser Guo, and Jeremy Goldcorn with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SupChina News. And make sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thank you for listening. We will see you next week. Take care.